0: The Way Out Podcast, Episode Two Hundred and Three.
1: My name is Marcus Marchand. I'm uh, I'm 41 years old. I was born January 2nd, 1979. My sobriety date is November 26, 2001. I've got a little under 19 years. I got sober at the age of 22. There's mental illness on both sides of my family. Um, I I'm dual diagnosis. I have I'm a, an alcoholic addict, and I have bipolar two disorder. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't find that out until about 2000, 2007, 2008, I would find out that I was a dual diagnosed. My biological father, he has bipolar 2 disorder. He also grew up in a dysfunctional household and my mom's side did as well. Lots of alcoholism, some drug addiction here and there, both sides with a lot of anxiety and depression. That that marriage between my mother and my biological father was bound to fail. Anyways, uh, so it was just my mom and I and my grandmother, my mom's mother. So they were the most important figures in my life. I was surrounded by women, but it was me, my mother, and my grandmother. And it was the three of us against the world. And I I thought that it was a big game. I thought it was fun. And I, I was the center of attention and I, I naturally liked it, I liked the attention, and my stepfather came in and I didn't like it. <laughs> and then my my half-brother was born when I was about six and a half, seven years old, and then not all the attention was on me, and I was extremely disturbed by this. And, uh, and from that point on, from about six or seven years old, I, I was looking for a way to escape or feel better. I didn't know what that was. Uh, I just wanted a way to just escape between those hours, you know, when I was home. And... Um, Uh, When I was in the ninth grade, I went to a party and I got really drunk for the first time and I realized that's the life I wanted. It felt great. My friends live in the suburbs, so that's why I would go to their parties. And uh, when my parents got back, I sat down with my mom and I go, Mom, I don't think us living together is working. I'm going to live with Grandma. And that's what I did, they they let me go. When I was about 15, I got to go into raves and I threw raves and I would sell drugs at raves. And it's like, you got a box with 500 people trapped that just want to do drugs. I'd make, you know, 15 grand in one night. I just drank, I used drugs every day from basically the age of 15 to 22. It was a roller coaster and I would find out like through psychiatry and, and trials, like medication trials that, oh, a lot of that stuff, that attention seeking, a lot of that danger, excitement sinking, I was hypomanic. Eventually, like I said, I'd get sober. And uh, and then the really dark stuff would happen because now my parents still don't want to talk to me. I'm sober. There's no drugs and alcohol to escape with. I would be sober. The first year was weird. The second year was weird. The third and fourth year, I stopped really in my mind and needing drugs and alcohol took about four years i went to my first aa meeting in 2009 i was sober on my own for eight years i was suicidal every day from i would say for about four years every day i was like i was it was horrible and uh, the anxiety was going out of i would lose eyesight for a little bit from anxiety attacks and my first aa meeting um was like may 30th of 2009 or something like that and after that meeting, I had a panic attack. I did share, they asked me to share. I had a panic attack, I almost threw up on myself. But after that meeting, I have not been suicidal since. It's 2020, and my first my first meeting was 11 years ago. And I ha- I've been depressed
0: since, but I have not wanted to kill myself once since then. Welcome, Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple. To bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out Podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out Podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and allrecoveryrings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's all recoveryRings.com. The Way Out Podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to DailyAAEmails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week, we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone somewhere needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this installment of The Way Out, Jason's got a spectacular interview with author and person in long-term recovery, and dual diagnosee, Marcus Marchand. Growing up in the 80s, Marcus endured his share of family dysfunction and adversity, and like so many of us, found drugs and alcohol to be quite the suitable escape from not only the strife within his family, but also his bipolar 2 disorder, which he wouldn't discover until well into sobriety. Sober at 22, Marcus's story is a welcome reminder that we don't have to drink and use for decades to fully qualify as alcoholics or addicts. Indeed, as his recovery journey unfolds, we come to understand what sobriety without working a program of recovery can be like and how profoundly we can change, grow, and truly transform when we start applying fundamental spiritual principles and sound behavior change on a foundation of sobriety. Listening to Marcus share his road to true recovery is like sitting with an old friend in recovery, share their story, complete with all the laughter, camaraderie, and heaps of spiritual and recovery truth at every turn. So listen up. Hey everybody, this is your trusty co-host Jason. Welcome to the
2: Whale Podcast. I got a special guest with us this episode. His name is Marcus Marchand and uh, yeah man, i he's a dude that reached out to the show. He wrote a couple books and he actually sent me copies of his books a few months ago. You know, I like to read read up on this stuff and sound like I know what I'm talking about so it took a little while but here we are and now we get to connect and we get to have a nice talk about recovery man uh so why don't you introduce yourself to everyone Marcus and let us know you know like what how long you been clean and what pathway did you use to get clean
1: sure uh yeah my name is Marcus Marchand uh Jason thank you so much and the way out listeners awesome this is great uh I, hey, I'm uh, I'm 41 years old. I was born January 2nd, 1979. My sobriety date is November 26, 2001. So I've, I've got a little under 19 years. Dang. Um, it was, <laughs> I got sober at the age of 22. Was it? And
2: uh, was that like a few days away, away from your birthday?
1: Well, I got sober the day after Thanksgiving in 2001 and my birthday's in January. So it was just right just before my birthday, a couple of few months. Right.
2: Right on. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, so, I thought I was, I thought you said the same month. I was like, damn, it's no, like no, no. four days. I thought like, <laughs> no, <laughs> no
1: I got, I got sober like the day after Thanksgiving in 2001. It was horrible.
2: <laughs> it was absolutely horrible. holiday. It was absolutely
1: baby. horrible. <laughs> yeah.
2: Hey, but so, uh, necessary evil, my friend.
1: <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, for sure.
2: Damn man. That's so, a lot of recovery time. That's a long time. <laughs>
1: It's been a trip. It's all. I mean, it's been. It's been interesting. <laughs> it's been interesting.
2: Hell yeah, I bet.
1: You, know. you want me just to go into it?
2: Oh sure. You know, just uh, tear it up. Let us know. All we right, want to hear. Man. We want to hear your story. It.
1: Okay, Jason. So um. So yeah, like I'm a kid. I grew up in the 80s. Um, you know, I'll give a little bit of my just family history, and then and then go. Um, just to get, you know, so people kind of understand, but. uh, and I want to say right now that there, I don't blame anybody for the things that I have, the bad stuff I've done. And I don't, I'm not one of those people. I don't blame my parents. I don't, I don't blame my bloodlines or anything. I made some really bad decisions. I grew up in a dysfunctional household. Yes. Um, and that's a whole other story and I'll fit some of it in, but uh, yeah, I grew up in 1979. Um, single mother. My mom was, uh, my mother had to le- had to, let go divorce of my biological father and, um, my biolog, there's mental illness on both sides of my family. Um, I, I'm dual diagnosis. I have, I'm a, an alcoholic addict and I have bipolar two disorder. Mm. And I wouldn't find that out until about two thousand two 2007, eight, I would find out that I was a dual diagnosed, mm. um, which I'll go into later. But, um, my father, my biological father, he has bipolar two disorder and um, he also grew up in a dysfunctional household and my mom's side did as well. Lots of alcoholism, some drug addiction here and there, both sides with a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, so that, my, that marriage between my mother and my biological father was bound to fail. Um, anyways, uh, so it was just my mom and I and my grandmother, my mom's mother. So they were the most important figures in my life. I was surrounded by women. There were really, I have a couple uncles here and there, but everybody's, you know, everybody's all over the place. They're all out of the house. So it was me, my mother, and my grandmother. And we, it was the three of us against the world. And I, and I thought that it was a big game. I thought it was fun. And I was the center of attention. And I, I naturally liked it. I liked the attention. My mom worked all day and I had my grandmother. And then my mother came and picked me up after she was done with work. And then I had my mother all to myself, so right. um, it was just I was the very center, and that was very comfortable for me to be the center. Mm-hmm. And then around the time I turned about four, another uh, uh, a cousin would show up, and right, and and uh, my mother would get remarried when I was five to a very strict, very strict, um, very well educated man. Um, my stepfather came from a great family, um, Roman Catholic, very big family, everybody's successful university educated, um, just work, very hardworking people, very strict people, very, very regimented, regimented top of the notch educations, private schools, private colleges, and my mom's side of the family, working class, more working class, poor, a lot of alcoholism. If a TV broke, you bought a new TV and put that on top of the broken TV kind of thing. A lot of episodes of hee-haw, Um, but it was fun. It was my, it was my life. And my stepfather came in and I didn't like it. (laughs) And then my, my half brother was born. And when I was about six and a half, seven years old, and then not all the attention was on me. And I was extremely disturbed by this. And, uh, and from that point on, from about six or seven years old, I I was looking for a way to escape or feel better. I didn't know what that was. And I think I would have uh, at family barbecues, I'd sip on family's beers and like wine coolers and, whatnot and oh, yeah. i loved it <laughs> i love i love the strawberry kiwi wine coolers and uh and that was my mom's drink and she would only drink part of it and i would chug them i'd be like eight years old chugging these things dude, I, yeah bartles and
2: james bro yes bartles my and mom, james my mom bartles dude, and same thing bartles, I, would drink, I would drink yeah shit when she would especially once she got drunk you know she'd leave you know a quarter of one or something or even a half <laughs> of one sitting around i'd fucking yeah Slam half of whatever was in it. Yes.
1: Yes. So that was, you know, it was a good time. I was, you know, I love barbecues and birthday parties. Everybody (laughs) was having a good time. People were smoking cigarettes and drinking. You know, it was a fun time. Um, Things would get more, as I got older, things would get more and more strict. And I hated it. I was grounded all the time. Once junior high started, um, I would start going to private school and my grades would drop. I was a really poor student and I was grounded all the time and uh which sucked because I was in my story I was a very popular kid I was like Zach Morris from "Say by the Bell nice. I was very popular <laughs> I was very well liked I was never bullied I none of that stuff I always had a pretty girlfriend or I would hold hands with a pretty girl right. and uh and so life was good and but when I got home life was horrible and uh, I just wanted a way to just escape between those hours you know when I was home and um Uh, when I was in the ninth grade I went to a party and I got really drunk for the first time and I realized that's the life I wanted it felt great and I my parents and my grandmother left and they went to Dallas Texas I think for a full week to see my godmother and I partied the whole week I stayed the week at my friend's house and we just had a party with like 50 people in the house for a week and I was like you're smart
2: dude like what That I've been there and my dumb ass was throwing a party at my fucking house and then everybody disappeared like magic and I'd end up stuck there like stressing out trying to clean everything up and yeah. Oh my God, people would mess shit up. And
1: yeah, totally. (laughs) Yeah. We tore up that person's house and, and I was like, you know, I lived out, I grew up in the country, so I grew up on lots of property and, uh, my next door neighbor was half a mile away, that kind of stuff. So it's, and then, um, But all my friends live in the suburbs, so that's why I would go to their parties. And uh, when my parents got back, I sat down with my mom and I go, Mom, I don't think us living together is working. I'm going to live with grandma. And that's what I did. They they let me go and they ended up buying a ranch in Eastern Oregon and moving away. And so I was on my own financially, just getting myself to school. I was an adult overnight in the ninth grade and I had to make money. And I I grew up pretty spoiled for a while, so I thought I'd never have to work. Yeah. yeah. And I had to get a job and I, I briefly for a couple of years, I, I sold mer, I sold pot and LSD and ecstasy and I was a drug dealer and I made money that way while I was working at like a Cinnabon, you know? I was just going to
2: say, dude, I mean, you could have been like me and discovered that you can make money selling drugs.
1: Yeah. I made a lot, I made a lot of money and I, when I was about 15, I got into going to go into raves and I threw raves and I would sell drugs at raves. And it's like, you got a box with 500 people trapped that just want to do drugs. Oh, hell yeah. And, and so it was like shooting fish in a barrel and I'd make, you know, 15 grand in one night and I'm like 17 years old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but that would, I would quit that really, really quickly. I, I had some scares with the law, so I would stop. I, I'm a scaredy cat. I'm not brave. So I didn't keep going. Um, <laughs> So I quit by the time I was about eighteen, and tried the whole getting a real job, and and I struggled with that. And I so I struggled with education. And I would I got my my G whatever it is. I I got my uh, Your GED. GED. I can't even say it. It's like I got my GED when I was supposed <laughs> to be in the eleventh grade, and then I went to I went to community college because that's where all my friends were, and they were all in their twenties and doing drugs, and I was kind of like their younger brother. So I went to college so I could be with my friends and uh, I never went to class, but I always got like a C. So somehow I got through th- throughout the years, I'd get like an, an associate's degree or something. But um, nice. I, I just drank, I used drugs every day from basically the age of 15 to 22. So I don't have a long, I guess you call it drunk a log. I didn't drink and use for very long. Right. I uh, I quit. It, it, I went really fast. I lived really, really fast. I I, um, I'm not proud of this. I'm kind of sh- embarrassed of it, but it's part of my story and it's how I made some money and I traveled a lot was I briefly had, I had these times of where I was modeling and I would go, I would go to South America or I'd go to Vancouver, BC or New York or LA or Miami. And, and that's how I got to travel and see stuff. And it, Why does I was, that embarrass you, know, you, though? I, I don't know. It's like, I, it just, it's like, Hey, I used to be a model. It's, it's just like, for some <laughs> reason I always think that I, I always think that like, Oh, this guy's full of shit. This guy's a puss.
2: Or and, it comes uh, across like douchey or something.
1: Yeah, kind of douchey. I don't. It comes across kind of douchey. I don't know, not, across, across I don't so know anyways, man. I mean,
2: I guess to me, but this is from an outsider's perspective, and it's mine, which is probably twisted perspective. But I think yeah. it's it just sounds like cool, you know, like fucking <laughs> hey, dude, that's awesome. It you sounds know? cool. Like I mean, you, it get, was, you get paid to fucking go travel and like, yeah, for very minimal effort. I'm sure. I yeah. don't know. I don't know. You know.
1: Yeah, it was, it's, that's about right. And, uh, you know, and the girls were pretty and everything, but it's, there was a lot of others. I saw some strange things that I drank even more over. I walked in on my agent, like, have, like, having intercourse with, like, 12-year-old girls.
2: Oh, my God. And,
1: like, there was a lot of that going on. So, there was a lot of that uh, pedophilia stuff that I saw. I've I've never been a victim of of, uh, sexual abuse or anything. So, I I escaped that. But, um, a lot of, right. Yeah, really. you're
2: running with, uh you know, somebody like that for a while. Yeah. I'm knowing they were that way. I remember in your book when you talked about that and that's, yeah, pretty much yeah. the same, same reaction I just had here when you say it, you know, but I, I have a history of sexual abuse. So I, that kind of freaking makes my skin crawl.
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, it makes a lot of our skins crawl. And like, yeah, yeah. so I saw a lot of guys in their forties having sex with 12 and 13 year old girls. And uh, it was not a lot. I, I walked in on it a couple of times and I was just, it blew my mind. And so that would bother me and I would pop a pill of ecstasy and I would smoke some pot and I'd be fine. Right. And, um, you know, and, and everybody would act like nothing was happening. And, you know, and my family was the same way, not with the pedophilia, but we would all, everybody would act like nothing was happening. Right. And um, so I would just drink more and use more. And I would, my parents don't love me. So I'm going to use drug story for a long time. hmm. And uh, so for a long time, it was just my grandmother and I, and the one rule was if you're going to use drugs, you can't come home. So I became a squatter for a while. I lived underneath the Burnside Bridge in Portland, the skate park. And I would break in, I'd break into buildings. Back in the 90s, a lot of buildings were just vacant in in Portland. Mm. And, um, And I would just go to the east side, the east waterfront by the Markham Bridge, and there'd be buildings with broken windows. And I'd sleep in those buildings for a few days, clean up, go back home. And I did that for like, I did that for a while. Like the only rule was be sober at home. And if I couldn't follow it, I couldn't come home. That was the only rule. And I, I, in one way or another, I followed it (laughs) because I just never came home like that. But, um, but I would continue that behavior off and on. And, um, you know, and things would just be, sometimes it was fun. Sometimes it was glamorous. And sometimes I was 30 pounds underweight and sleeping under a bridge. It was all over the place, you know, definitely. uh,
2: It's a, roller coaster ride. It
1: was, yeah, it was a roller coaster. And I would find out like through psychiatry and and trials, like medication trials that, Oh, a lot of that stuff, that attention seeking, a lot of that danger, excitement sinking, I was hypomanic Mm. and, um, like smoking, like drinking and doing ecstasy does not help bipolar two disorder.
2: (laughs) No, none of it.
1: and uh, It made it worse for a while. And, and eventually, like I said, I'd get sober. And uh, and then the really dark stuff would happen because now my parents still don't want to talk to me. I'm sober. There's no drugs and alcohol to escape with. Right. It's back to I'm without a job. I can't work because I'm depressed. I'm so depressed. I would just leave jobs. I would. They're like, where are you going, Marcus? And I'm like, I got to go home and go to bed. And right. then I, they'd be like, Well, y- you can't come back. And I'm like, Okay, I'll find a job. So right. a lot
2: of dude, you said of, that I relate to that so yeah, damn much. Oh,
1: yeah. Wow. And it's like a lot of working at Starbucks, a lot of um, the Nordstrom Rack, a lot, of, a lot of retail jobs, places that I could get into really quickly. Mm. And um, I didn't start getting into like having a career until kind of recently in the, in the last, you know, less than a decade, in the last six, seven years. Right. So, um, uh, yeah. So, now the drugs and alcohol are out of the way. And I would be sober. The first year was weird. The second year was weird. The third and fourth year, I stopped really in my mind and needing drugs and alcohol. It took about four years for all for all that weird, I'm missing out, I miss my friends. I had to get rid of all my friends. I had no friends for like four years. Right. And, but uh, that's the problem. That's
2: the problem, right? Because we yeah. need to replace it. Like you can cut, yeah. yes, it's it's key to cut it out, but then we need to replace those people. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Exactly. We need to find a healthy, a healthy way to replace these things. It's key. And I wouldn't, I would, it's totally key. And I wouldn't know this until 2010 because I didn't, well, 2009, I went to my first AA meeting in 2009. So I had almost (laughs) eight years. I was, I was being, I was sober on my own
2: for eight years. I went to dude. Like reading your book, bro. I was like, I don't know how the fuck this dude did this shit. Cause I'm like, yeah. Damn, that's a long motherfucking time to stay there. I know people that are digging in and doing this work that can't keep it to get, you know, sustainable. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. I I can't put myself in or out of that box yet. Cause I just got a little, I just got four years like recently, but bro, yeah. it's like, that's, that's awesome. I, I, you're definitely a rare breed, my friend, because I don't think I could have no fucking way without, uh, <laughs> you know, sponsoring up and getting connected with the community. Yeah. And all that. No way.
1: See, like I grew up, my biological father, he's been sober since my third birthday. So he got sober in 1982, January. And, um, but he, I grew up, I would see him once every four or five years and he would always tell me stories about, if, if, don't ever go to AA, it, all people do is sleep with each other, it's a bad place. So I grew up with him telling me to stay out of 12-step programs. So I didn't know, I didn't try it. So what I, my first introduction to group anything, working with a group, was through groups called NAMI and DVSA. And NAMI stands for National Alliance for Mental Illness and DVSA is Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. Every That's major awesome. city has these groups, right? So I started going every Tuesday and Thursday at 7pm and I'd meet up with like 30 people and we'd talk about what we were going through and I was, this all started about 2007 and that's when I was starting to get, uh, I was going through the ringer of the medical industry, doctors and finding out what was going on with me. All the different blood tests, every, I was, I went through it. It took from 2007 to 2009, so two years of just trials of just trying to figure out what was going on, paying out of pocket, I was living at home making minimum wage and giving all my money, money to doctors, all of it. And, uh, because I mean, it was like going to college and every test was like a thousand dollars or something. Right. So, and I finally figured out, they were like, yeah, it looks like you're on the bipolar two spectrum and a lot of depression and anxiety and da 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 da, da, da And this is how we're going to, you know, go towards it and work towards it. And, and I wouldn't really balance out until probably about 2000, I don't know, 10. It was another couple of years. So, I mean, and by wow. 2010, I've been sober, you know, like nine years. And uh, it was a long time. But this isn't yeah, and everybody. And that's when you
2: first started digging into to this deep work.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. insane to
2: me. Wow. Well done.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. But, I mean, it was all, you know, working with, work, having a mentor with DBSA and NAMI. I volunteered. That was all deep work as well. But it wasn't, it wasn't, I needed a lot more. Right. And so, I found, of course, I found a sponsor. I went to my first AA meeting. I think it was May, late May of '09, And I went uh, in Portland, Oregon, the Alano Club over in Northwest Portland, which is where I usually lived when I lived in the city. And uh, so, it was just a couple blocks away from where I lived, And I would go there all the time, every day. Um. Eventually, the first few months, I only went like maybe once a week at a noon meeting. It was full of rich white guys, and I was like this poor white guy, and I felt so out of place. Mm. But uh, but I kept going. My 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 sponsor. That's kind of cool though,
2: dude. Like having yeah. having uh, because like I've through my process, right? I've learned that like I'm better when I'm surrounding myself with people that are so far beyond me, right? Like, yes. I have living examples around me of what I can aspire to or what's possible for maybe. Totally. My life. Yeah. So like in an, in essence, even though you probably felt like a complete fucking fish out of water, you were yeah. in the perfect place. Cause you were seeing yeah. what healthy uh, successful recovery looks like, you know?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's like, yeah, if you're in the, if you're in the army and you have a chance to work with a Navy seal, like get, like grab on, you know? Damn and, right. uh, and I had that. I had a guy with 32 years of sobriety. He was like in his mid. He was, I think just turning 70. He's still a mentor of mine. We still stay connected through all my moves and all my adventures. We've stayed connected. And, um, and yeah, I, I mean, I was, I was suicidal every day from, I would say for about four years, every day. I was like, I was, it was horrible. And uh, the anxiety was going out of, I would lose eyesight for a little bit from anxiety attacks. And my first AA meeting um, was like May 30th of 2009 or something like that. And after that meeting, I had a panic attack. I did share. They asked me to share. I had a panic attack. I almost threw up on myself. But after that meeting, I have not been suicidal since. And it's, two, it's twenty. Amazing. Yeah, it's 2020. And my first, my first meeting was 11 years ago. And I ha- I've been depressed since, but I have not wanted to kill myself once since then.
2: That's a so, major major improvement, bro. And that's, that's
1: incredible.
2: Speaks to the power of uh, one addict helping another, right?
1: Yeah, it's it's totally incredible, and that's why I kept coming. I don't always like AA. I've been all over the world with AA and other and other programs, but I I've been to meetings that I just didn't like. I've been i this I mean it's still, it still doesn't mean it's a bad meeting. I just didn't like it. There's been right. people that I didn't like but there's something amazing about it or else I wouldn't keep going. Mm. You know, as I still go, there's these phone meetings. I still hit five a week, you know, it's like, like some of my best friends are on these meetings and, at, you know, it, live in my town and we meet up through thick and thin wearing a mask. It's like, if it wasn't important, I would have stopped a long time ago. Damn right. You know, so, but yeah, but the, honestly, the majority of my story is about, The the ghosts or the things that are intangible, the things that you can't touch, the the mental. I call it the mental illness of addiction. I put down the drink and the drug and nicotine all in one day. I stopped smoking cigarettes, and uh, but but and it sucked. I had withdrawals. My grandmother was my nurse. Like I was sick for a while, and she made me breakfast. She folded my clothes. She did everything for me for like three months what was that and, you say
2: in the book you're like every time every fucking time grandma just make me like bacon and eggs and that was she be made never, me bacon
1: and eggs like never say a fucking morning. word <laughs> yeah she never said anything
2: that's awesome but
1: yeah it was amazing she was amazing like my grandmother and I picked up like Tony Robbins and I read his first book and that helped me stay sober and right and yeah I, I found ways to do it I wouldn't I mean but yeah, there's no there's no substitute for the big book. For me, of course, that's such an amazing book. Mm. And but yeah, back but it's like most of my story is like this, the the two thirds of the iceberg that's below the water. I think drinking and using is the top of the iceberg, but mm. there's like two thirds of the rest of that iceberg that we have to deal with. That it's like it's the emotions, it's the childhood, it's the breakups, it's the poor self esteem, it's the like eating disorders, it's the cutting, it's everything. Yeah. Right. And it's like,
2: that's a lifelong process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That takes, it's going to take more than 90 and 90 to fix all that.
2: Damn right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So, so yeah, that's, um, as far as like alcohol and addiction goes, man, that's, that's, that's my story, you know, and now things are, things are a lot better. I work another program on top of it. Um, I have mentors and group guys in that program. I'm, digging into like my childhood and realizing the things that that weren't really that weren't my fault there were things that happened that were not my fault that mm-hmm. i've carried blame over and i drank over those things there oh, yeah. there were li- there were lies that i was told not by parents that wanted to hurt me but that's all they didn't know either they were they grew up in dysfunctional households they had no idea what they're doing mm-hmm. and they were they were scared out of their minds with a kid or our kids plural and mm-hmm. And they probably came from some horrible stuff as well. And no, I don't think a lot of people are out to hurt each other. It's just that a lot of people are really damaged and traumatized and working with really shitty tools.
2: Dude, I, that's so well said. I mean, truly the older I get. And then especially getting into recovery and getting on this mission of self-discovery. Right. And like, Dude, the the further into this stuff and into life I get, the more respect and admiration and appreciation I have for my mother, even though, you know, like it was a fucking dysfunctional home life and and, and, uh, growing up and whatnot. It's like you said, you know, it's like she's doing the best she could with the tools that she was given, just like anybody else, you know, and we're all flawed people, man. You know, we all are. Yeah. Totally. Yeah,
1: it's it's very, very rare when you meet somebody that came from a, came from a healthy environment. It's very yeah, rare. I'm, I'm finding real. that they're out there. I've met them. I've dated women that came from healthy environments. I met their families. I spent time with their families. And the reason why we didn't work out was because of me. It's like, yeah. I was so, like, I would be at their family get-togethers and I would go into the bathroom and hide. I just felt like I didn't deserve to be there. And that's not their know. fault. They're, that's not my parents' fault. It's just the way things ended up. And now yeah, it's that's just, like,
2: that's your stuff, right? I mean, that's, that's my stuff. stuff.
1: Exactly. That's my stuff. Yeah. And that's what I think that part is. When we say that's my stuff, that's why a lot of people, I think relapse that it's like, Oh my God, I have to take care of my side of things. Or mm. it's like when we find out the real truth, it's like, Oh my God, it's so much easier just to keep using sometimes. I think, And I'm not saying, that we're all like that. But I've, I'm like, I've just noticed over the years, like a lot of people kind of drop off just because of what we're talking about. this second is it's like, Oh wow. You see a mountain of what I have to work on. Right. And it's like, Oh my God.
2: But at the same time, I think that there's been some freedom that I've, uh, I've, Been able to experience from just noticing having this. I always say the greatest gift I got in recovery was the gift of self awareness. Right, because my thinking is twisted, and when I'm sitting in some twisted line of thinking, and you know, the old me would lash out in anger rather than you know say that my feelings are hurt or that um, I'm sad or something like that. You know, Uh, and and it's all because that's a survival mechanism. Right. But like now I, I can have enough self-awareness where I can catch myself and I save myself a lot of, uh, and probably other people, a lot of pain. I think sometimes by just being able to recognize that, like, that's my stuff and I don't need to like project that onto another human being. I can talk to people, reach out for support, you know, work through all that shit with other human beings. Obviously I need to do that, but, um, you know, in those kinds of situations, dude, where it's so easy for it to come out sideways at somebody that doesn't, yeah. they're not deserving of it. And they're probably going to sit there like, what the fuck was that? Because yeah, they don't know what's going on behind the, you know, <laughs> feeling behind the feeling. Totally. Yeah,
1: totally. It 100%. It's
2: crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So yeah, when you, uh, you start. When did you start writing your first book?
1: Well, I mean, I wrote. Writing's been in in my life for a while. Like, I wrote a screen. Pa- I wrote a screenplay when I was 20, uh, 24 years old, okay. and I and I sold it. But no, of course, nothing happened with it. But I, um, I was living with some movie producers in Portland briefly. I lived in their house, and they hired me to write them something. I did it, and it honestly, it was horrible. So nothing ever happened with it. But they they, they, they bought it from me just because they you know all, I went through all the trouble. Out. But it was, it was horrible. And, uh, and so that didn't go anywhere. Then I, I wrote my first book, but I never published it when I was also, when I was about 25, it took me about 10 months. And um, that, that nothing happened with that. It was just a big manic, just blurb. It was like a one run on sentence that lasted 400 pages. It was horrible.
2: Sounds like so, when I write.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was bad, dude. It was really bad. And so then I just quit writing for a long time. And then I in 2018, I got hit by a car. I was riding my bike. I used to work in hotels. I was a concierge before COVID, and um, I was working over in Chinatown here in San Francisco. And I was riding my bike, and I got hit by a taxi cab, and uh, and I got I flipped over the cab, and that whole thing happened. I had to go to the hospital, and I'm fine, but it just it was just shocking. But then I started riding the next day, and I haven't stopped. It's weird. So I uh, I just I wrote. I wrote Junk Knowledge in like six weeks, I think. I don't know. It was under a few months. I wrote, yeah, I wrote that book. I wrote Junk Knowledge and then I wrote The Darkest Chapter and then I wrote um, my third book. I wrote all those in like a year and um, and I got them all. It took me, I mean, it took another year almost to get like my stuff published, like uh, Junk Knowledge, the first book, which is basically my story and how I got sober. And then the darkest chapter, which is a messy guide to dual diagnosis, that's focuses on my dual diagnosis and just ways to get help. And there's, there's all this information in there. So those like that came out like what April this year. And then my third book came out like last month. Oh no shit. So I've just been busy, but yeah.
2: Dude, that's pretty amazing though. I guess that just kind of shocked me to hear you say that you wrote all that stuff in like inside of a year.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm finishing my fourth now. I'm like, I'm two thirds of the way of my like, These are just rough drafts though. It's like, you can write a rough draft in no time. It's but making it like the copy that I sent you, I'm having it redone by my publisher. Like I was reading through my book and I'm like, Oh my God, this sounds horrible. So I had to re. Finish. So, but anyways, you got my first edition.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel you dude. But like, like I was saying, it's, it's still crystal clear. You know, you can still follow the context. I mean, definitely, definitely could use some editing, but Hey, I I still got mad appreciation for your uh, willingness to share that shit in, in such an honest, uh, way, you know, really truth be told, you're pretty, your candor is very, very, uh, you know, period point blank in a lot of that book where, you know, no, no apologies, man, you know, you're just you're real and that might be abrasive. That might be blunt. That might be whatever, but dude, it was, it's, it's the kind of shit that, you know, true honesty, right? Like needs to, That's going to come across that way. You know what I mean? Regardless yeah. of what it is that you say, I mean, <laughs> you, you're going to offend somebody no matter what the fuck you say. Yeah. Anyway. yeah
1: I, so I, I
2: really appreciated it. You know, that you, <laughs> and I always do appreciate anybody that's willing to step out and, put themselves out there in that kind of way. That's awesome. man.
1: Thanks, man. Thanks, Jason.
2: For sure. dude. We need more people doing that. You know, the, the more people that are willing to speak up and recover out loud, you know, the more people. Yeah. That, I mean, they're, they're the coming whole,
1: out, you know, you're here, there's people here there are people, more and more people are coming out. I really think that like what I've found is like these podcasts, like what, and what you're, what you're doing, things like, and there's other guys that I've talked to the, I think these podcasts, um are kind of playing a major bridge for more people to come out.
2: Hell yeah. But
1: yeah. It's I mean like that's why I've really been reaching out to guys that do what you're doing. And it's not just so I can like, I want to be popular. It's just like, wow, what a way to get your story out and what right. more people to hear like I've had I've lately the past couple months since like early July, more and more people have been emailing me from the first podcast I did, and like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna start talking more at meetings. I, I'm gonna go to more meetings. I was like, I thought I was insane. I was the only person that was insane. And it's like more, <laughs> more people need to hear that. Like we're all kind of cuckoo, but we're getting out of it. You know.
2: Isn't that fucked up that far, this far in, you thought you were, you still get that terminal uniqueness, you know, where you think yeah. you're the only one that's yeah, as yeah. crazy as you are. But every time you tell your fucking story, people are reaching out and, you know, it's cool in person, man. I, I still think that's a whole nother beast, man. I think it's easier to do this podcast thing than it is to yeah. go in front of a room full of people. Yeah. Oh boy. And then, and then dude, uh, I don't know if you've done it, but try speaking at like, a like a family and uh, type support. Like uh, here we got like a faith-based one called thrive. I spoke at their meetings before okay. uh, twice and dude, they're so much more engaging. You know how like if you give them a chance to ask questions at the end yeah. in an AA meeting, it's always crickets. Yes. Yes. You never have a person ask a fucking question. And yeah. Then, but you go to like one of those and speak, dude. And you got to, you're getting nailed with some questions, bro. Okay. That are, that are hard, and you're sitting there like, uh, like I, you can, you could cut the tension with a knife. You can feel the energy and the pain in the yeah. room, and you don't want to like hurt or cause any more insult to injury, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. I so it's you. It's like doing this, bro, is like, hey, I don't even have to know you personally, dude, to know that, you know, We're brothers and we got this common bond, right? That we're on this chain of self discovery and personal growth, and dude, just like a spiritual quest and shit. And like we can connect, we can connect on that immediately. And it's like for me, it's just me and you, and we're having a good talk about recovery. I'm not Mm -hmm. thinking about all those fuckers out there that are listening to this right now, you know? You're right. Not, but when you're in front of them, you're you feel the nerves more. That's me though. <laughs> That's I got people, I've had people straight up dude they want me to stop every five minutes when we're recording you know and they need to cut out this part or they want to change this part or like re-record that part and i'm like dude oh wow we just have the conversation and then you tell me what you want out and i'll like go through it and we can edit it out you know because yeah. i don't have all week to do this you know right. <laughs> but it's that different strokes for different folks and people some people their anxiety over this is way worse because they're thinking of it like there's going to be you know, millions of fucking people listening to this. And I mean, over the next 20 years, potentially, I don't know. You know, I just don't think of it like that though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you're talking about a group called Thrive?
2: Yeah. It's called Thrive Family Addiction Support. It's based out of Minnesota. It's a nonprofit organization. Interesting. Yeah, it's really good. Like, and they do, they have online ones too, mm-hmm. but then up here in the twin cities, they have a lot of meetings around the Metro and it's not like Al-Anon in the sense where there's like, there's not a, uh, a, you know, program of steps that they do. Um, sure. it's, it's basically, uh, you know, people that have ha- found healthier ways to love people well in their life and, uh, sure. overcome stuff. Helping other people who really need to figure that out, figure it out, you know, and find peace. But it's it's very much similar to uh, Al-Anon in the, in the things that they teach. And that got it. I can wrap my mind around that. But there's a- like a faith based element to it too. It's cool. Cool. Yeah. Right on. Hell yeah, man! So you you doing now for your uh, spiritual program? Now,
1: I, well, I've uh, recently started working ACA, really heavy.
2: Adult and, children uh, of alcoholics?
1: Yeah, that's heavy. And I'm doing the steps on that, the workbook. And, you know, I hit a meeting every day on that around six o'clock, like over that's the awesome. phone. It's amazing, man. It's, it's really like, it's because I was hitting a plateau for quite a while for the last couple of years in my, just my program. Right. And I want to keep everything. I don't want to let anything go. And but I just don't want to get. I don't know what the word is. I'll just use, I was getting bored and, right. I, and that's, I get into a routine and, um, and then I just had a situation come up and I was like, I really need some support on this. And somebody recommended, I've gone to a few of those meetings in the past, over the past like 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I just never thought anything of it. And this time around where I'm at, I'm like, Oh wow, this is intense. Right. So now, now I'm just, I'm incorporating that with my, with my fourth book. And I'm just right now, I'm just talking about how to thrive and, during adversity, like, like this whole time with, um, with COVID and like, you know, the coronavirus and all this, like, I'm seeing a lot of people in my inner circle. They're, they're cracking. A lot of people I know are cracking under this pressure.
2: Dude. Hell yeah.
1: Yeah. A lot of people, people with 10, 20, 30 years are not doing well emotionally. Mm -mm, And I, and I was getting kind of weird for a while. And then I joined this new group to add on to just to add on. And it's, it's helped me out a, a lot personally. And mm-hmm. and plus it's like, you know, I exercise and I eat well and I get my sleep. So I'm just, a lot of people aren't sleeping. They're not eating right. They're, you know, they're just, yeah. they're, they're adding on and then they're stuck in their homes or they think they are, they're not going out at all for, for days at a time. Human Lots. beings aren't designed
2: <laughs> <laughs> to stay yeah. home. No, So no, connection is the opposite of addiction. And it's funny oh, you yeah. say that. Like I, I just recently started and this was actually pre COVID, I started attending Al-Anon. Um, you know, you hear about it all the time, in, in AA, like double winners, you know, people that yeah uh, work the Al-Anon steps after they had a few years in recovery. And uh, I just decided I was going to do that, and it was like to to your point earlier, you know, like how it's dealing with life, right? Like I had a yeah. break, I had a breakup that was just sitting really bad with me, man, and I was it just brought up so much damn insecurity and like doubt in myself that I was like, I need to like fucking address this shit. And I didn't, and I didn't think that the steps I were, you know, like I thought I needed something different. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, I wanted to focus. I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to peel back more layers of my onion Yeah. and, and I, and I would never disconnect fully from any of the other things that I've done because I, I've, I'm a firm believer that like, I need, you know, to stay connected to the, to the recovery people. I need to continue to do that work with other addicts and alcoholics. I need to stay, you know, I need to keep doing like the ministry things and like the church. Mm-hmm. stuff. So those are the dimensions that I've established so far. Now I'm just adding another, like you said, adding to yes. um, my, my program, you know, and it's, it's, it it got brought to a pretty abrupt halt, uh, because of the COVID, you know, the club that I was going, that, that meeting was at closed for like three no. months, but dude, yeah. yeah, it's so cool that you're, you know, and then again, would you be doing this without that gift of self-awareness, you know, like to know that, Hey, I need to, I need something different. I need to freshen it up. Shake the yeah, sure. You
1: know, I'm a total advocate for that because over the years, when I, like even before AA, I went to Al Anon for a year, right? right? And it's like I mean, I've worked the steps for Al Anon. I've worked the steps for Coda. I've worked the steps for AA, and now I'm working the steps for ACA. It's like why not get a why not get multiple black belts, you know? Damn right. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. You know it. what I mean? It's like be your own like samurai, you know? It's like be the best you can. And like no program's perfect, nobody is perfect. And it's like like just Network, whatever you want to call it, but I think being open is so powerful. Totally. And uh, and trying other new things, and if something just doesn't work for you, we don't have to keep going. But right. But yeah, it's like. Well, like you said, you're getting
2: you're getting that network so much bigger than a person that would stay shackled to one fellowship, right? Oh sure. They're only going to meet people who do this, but you're you're building a freaking network of people from all these different things, dude. And good on you man that's the best way I'm the same way I always say like I am like I was with my drugs I'm a buffet style recovery you
1: know <laughs> totally totally yeah, yeah. experiment <laughs> Fuck I man. mean that's one of the that's one of the interesting things that I I want to keep up with like that came from I don't know if it's from my addiction but I experimented with so many things as a kid and it's like I tried a lot of stuff and that carried over with You know, I live in San Francisco. I I manage a building that's full of people from all over the world. You know, it's like, Mm. I've got people from Russia, from Vietnam, from China, from the UK, from India, the whole world lives in my building. And it's like, Mm. why not take, why not approach life like that? You know? Amen, dude.
2: Yeah. We're all, like I would say, we're all God's creation. right? Like we're all brothers and sisters out here and we should, we should be able to, treat each other as such, you know, it's unfortunate all the division in the world today, but I just try to love on the people in front of me, you know, and if they ain't having it, then, you know, we ain't going to be hanging out, <laughs> you know, I don't, yeah, but I don't sure. have to engage in that. I can just yeah. disengage and, uh, yeah, you know, um, so dude, it's so awesome. I'm going to, I'm going to throw some rapid fire questions your way here. Sure, it's gonna be super fun. Okay, are you ready? I am. <laughs> all right. What's the best piece of advice that helped you in your recovery?
1: That oh man, um, the best piece of advice. This would come from my first sponsor. He, what did he say to me? He was just like, I mean, it's we we've all heard it a million times, but I mean, it was the most simple thing. He was just, he's like just just be willing. That's all he, that's what he said to me. He was just, just be willing. That was like the first day I ever met him.
2: Yes. I I mean, I don't know what else to say. And you're like, dude, why is this under my skin? Why can I not get this out of my head? Yeah. 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 Yeah, dude. Those things. And it's funny because then once you do the work, right. And, and you've stepped through, you know, through fear uh, enough times and experienced the benefits of that where, you know, you could you could see that on the wall now or you yeah. could read it or like, you know how you'll see the things that say the how, how honesty, open, windness, willingness. And maybe you look at that word willingness and think of what hit when he told yeah. you. Yeah. Well, now it's I got learned, a deep personal significance to you. But at that time you were like, yeah. why is this fucking in my head? I just get, yeah.
1: what I learned is that like the boogeyman and fear, <laughs> the, the boogeyman is a coward. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I mean, the boogeyman lives in a closet for a reason. Right, And it's like, he's just, so that's what I learned. Yeah. Just be willing. I like and, that. Yeah. It's I might like, have to the, throw the, a
2: quote in the show notes. On that yeah. shit. So you said the boogeyman yeah. is a coward. There's, yeah. The boogeyman lives in a closet for a reason. Wow. It's true. That's heavy shit. <laughs> <laughs> for real. Yeah. I love it, dude. All right. Uh, next question, a book recommendation, something that uh, really, really helped you a lot in
1: your recovery? Oh man, just just recently, just recently, I just finished uh, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins, the Navy SEAL.
2: Can't Hurt Me?
1: Yeah, he's on Joe Rogan a lot. He's, the, he's considered like the most like badass guy. He's the one that, ru- he ran a hundred miles with no training. He's amazing. Wow. Yeah, he's amazing. Like listen to David Goggins, that guy's amazing.
2: I'm gonna have to, and I can yeah. look up, and I can look up some of those podcasts, and I'll probably get oh, to yeah, listen to the dude, dude talk for like, like twelve hours or something.
1: Yeah, da- like daily. <laughs> like he'll just be running and just jogging in the desert. and He's just like, stay hard, <laughs>
2: <laughs> dude. Okay, this is off topic, but it's hilarious. Yep. This I seen a meme the other day that was like, uh, you know, you know the Batman and Robin memes where Batman smacking Robin, and it's got yes like bubbles. So it said, the Robin guy said, I need to, I think I need to buy Viagra. And then the Batman guy had easy ease head superimposed over Batman's head. And it said, the boys in the hood are always hard. <laughs> <This> is- <laughs> Just made me laugh so fucking hard. I was like, that's good shit right there. Good stuff. That's uh, good. Next one. What is the hardest thing that you've had to do in your recovery?
1: honestly man really recently and i hope it's not permanent but i've had to cut ties with my mother yeah yeah it's the hardest thing i've had to do it's been a month right now it's been like well it's been 32 days it's the hardest thing i've ever done i'm sorry man yeah i had to cut ties i mean i had the physical withdrawals i had everything it, it felt like i was quitting heroin damn yeah that's well, all i can say
2: <laughs> i hope I, no and that's totally cool I, I i just i'd like to let you know i'll I'm going to be praying about that, bro. Like that, yeah, that you, that yeah. relationship can be restored at least yeah, to some that. level, you know, of, uh, you know, yeah, it's ability rough. to coexist. I can't imagine, can't imagine how that must feel. Yeah, um, crazy. all right. The next question, what's the most rewarding thing that you've done in your recovery?
1: I'm not crazy anymore.
2: <laughs> nice
1: <laughs> yeah no i'm like i don't i i'm right now i'm in the best physical and mental and spiritual shape i've ever been in, ever yeah that's it
2: so really that's a collective like all yeah. the work the all perseverance essentially yeah um without that you wouldn't be where you are today and yeah i'm sure there's many times of you know, along the road where it was overwhelming or the insecurities are screaming. I can't do it. i fuck it. You know, you want to just say, fuck it. Right. Yeah. Like what's the point? What's the point? point? Yeah. But then you push through man. And, and now you're like reaping the rewards, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Hell yeah, dude. That's awesome. Okay. Next one. Do you got a song that you think symbolizes your recovery?
1: I would say protection by Massive Attack.
2: Oh, dude, that's such a good song. I, I know that, that is
1: my song. That has been my anthem since I was 19.
2: That is awesome, man. I just got goosebumps when you said that. But that's a yeah. that's my stuff because I love Massive Attack. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hell yeah, hell yeah, straight up, dude. Uh, all right, next one. Recovery resources that you would like to recommend to the listeners. Gosh. Um,
1: well, I mean, there's so many different things. I mean, I, I mean, of course, AA. I mean, if you're just googling things, let's say, I mean, like I would look up if you're dealing with severe depression or anything like that. On top of what you're going, like on top of like sobriety, I would look up depression bipolar depression bipolar support alliance. I'd look up NAMI, and that's spelled M A M N A M I. I mean, for me. what's what's skyrocketed my recovery right now is adult children's about uh, ACA adult children, alcoholics. Um, yeah, let's, and then also like writing, journaling, write how you're feeling, write it down. Right. Just, just write it down. If if it's just a word and you can't spell the words right, just write it down.
2: Hell yeah. You know what you meant.
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know what you meant. Write it down. It's so important.
2: So you said DBSA, NAMI, yeah. ACA, AA, in journal yeah. and writing.
1: Yeah.
2: Awesome, awesome. Those are great suggestions, and I really like that you brought up DBSA. I honestly don't think that almost, uh, at least out of my interviews, I'm sure plenty of people have. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of episodes of this show that I'm not on. So, and I'm not going to sit here and act like I've listened to every episode of our show. I haven't listened to Got every it. episode of our show, but. I don't, I've never had anybody, uh, you know, ref- do that as one of their recommendations. Uh, NAMI is another one. Great, great resource that uh, yeah. I've only had a couple of people. Yeah, really dude, and in, in
1: my, uh, in my book, the darkest chapter, I have a chapter just on like, just on this, like who to call email addresses. Awesome. I, it's yeah. awesome. And I your, books, I your
2: books will be, uh, in the show notes as well. So I know we got junk knowledge we got the darkest chapter what's the uh, name of your other book
1: oh my third my third book I mean it's not really it's not recovery related
2: but, oh <laughs> um,
1: yeah it's not recovery related it's just the, just the first two
2: okay cool right on
1: yeah <laughs> no and worries. I can I can email you links to those
2: yeah you know it's funny that would be helpful because yeah. generally i I just like I'll do like Amazon searches and shit like I'll yeah. – I, when I write up the show notes for, for post-production to send to Charles, I always like sit and I'll, I'll find that shit online and I get sure. the link I'll, and I get the I'll clickable link so I can put it in the show notes to make it easier for the listeners. But sure. if you want to do that to make my life easier, then yeah, you're my of course, best man. I know then you're my dude. best friend. <laughs> yeah,
1: I get it, dude. I get
2: it. <laughs> dude, it's been an awesome and a pleasure finally getting to connect with you, dude. Um, yeah. Definitely want you to know you got a friend in me, brother, and thanks so much for reaching out to us and sharing. got it,
1: Jason. This has been a blast, man.
2: All right, dude. Well, with that, guys, we're going to take off. I hope everybody has a blessed week ahead and take care.
0: Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show contact us at share at wayoutcast.com see you next time and remember if you don't change your sobriety date will